Today's video was recorded on July 12, 2022, and this video is our introductory lesson to exploring the background of the Transfiguration story. The Transfiguration of Jesus is one of the most enigmatic stories in the Bible. So in this series, my goal is to provide as much of the background and cultural context to this story as possible. And when we do this, it'll help you gain a deeper understanding of the meaning and significance of what's taking place upon that mountain. Now, there's a lot of information packed into this event, and it's not an easy topic. So we'll be fleshing these details out over the course of the next five to six weeks. When we understand the context of the Transfiguration event, and we're able to contemplate the majesty of the reality of who Jesus is, then the Spirit of God can more readily work in us and through us to give us insight into the deeper, more profound meaning of this event. So we hope you can join us on this journey to see with new eyes just how amazing this story is and how it can impact us in our work toward bringing the kingdom of God. Big Tree Ministries is a 501c3 nonprofit, and our ongoing operations rely upon the generous donations of our supporters. If you find our lessons valuable to your understanding of the Bible, we ask that you consider making a financial donation to support the ministry. Your financial support directly impacts our ability to continue to expand our reach and to help others just like you go deeper into the biblical text. The clearer we understand Scripture, the deeper we can go into the text, the more solid the foundations of our faith become. Donations are easy through the donate page on our website, figtreeteaching.com, and we've also included a link that will take you directly to that page in the description section below. So we hope you enjoy today's introductory lesson on the background of the transfiguration of Jesus. All right, well, let's get started tonight. And what we're going to be doing is, this is the summer of 2022, July of 2022. And what we've been doing is we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. We got up part 20 last time, and that was up to the Ten Commandments. And this is going to be a little break from that for the summer. And something that God has put on my heart is to walk through the transfiguration story, which is not easy. So what I'm going to be doing over the next four or five weeks is trying to lay the foundation to understand the background that goes into the transfiguration story. Now, we may come to some conclusions about the meaning, and there are multiple meanings of the transfiguration, but we may come to that. My goal is to try not to do this to solve something, but to present the background so that you understand everything that's feeding into this. What would we be thinking if we were sitting in the first century audience that received the letter from Mark or Matthew and we're reading the story of the Transfiguration? What would our understanding of that story be? That's what we're going to try to do. And it's really about building that, the background of the transfiguration so that we can understand what this is presenting us. Um, okay, so let's see. Our 
the photo, the, sorry, not photo, the painting that we're going to be using here, this is a found in a church in Belgium, St. Jacob's Church or St. James Church in Belgium, the Transfiguration of the Lord. And of course, you have all the characters that we're going to be seeing throughout this, our study of the Transfiguration, the three disciples, and then Elijah and Moses. So this will take us probably four, five, six sessions, I believe. At least, well, I'd have to say at least five. We have to flesh out a number of things that are going on in the background. To help you do this, because it's not easy, we've got a class handout. And that handout, you can find a link. You'll find it on our website, figtreeteaching.com. But if you go right below this video, if you're watching it on YouTube or if you're listening on I, uh, Apple iTunes, look below the video in the description section and you'll see a link to a PDF. Because what I want to do is make sure you have all of the information that you'd need to do the study yourself. There is a ton. So I'm trying to give you the high points. And I'm sure if you dig deep enough, you'll find more than even I'm presenting. But it's complex enough subject. I want to keep it on one hand manageable, but on the other hand, to give you the data so that you can go find it. So the class handout will really help you keep all of this information organized. It's always very helpful to print it off and have it handy for you to take notes as you're listening, watching the video, or listening on, uh, to a podcast. So please be aware that that exists. That will be uh, of great utility for you to keep track of everything that's flowing into this story. So what's the overall goal here of this study? What am, I, uh, what am I attempting to do here? So the overall goal for this series is really to provide you, the audience, with the broadest foundation for understanding. And that is to provide you with the elements that go into how we can understand this event. And God willing, by the time we're complete, you'll have a type of roadmap, or as I'll show you, I'm going to put together like a little spiritual mind map that will help you recognize the various aspects that are going to flow into the story. And then what's going to rise up out of that is going to be meaning and understanding about the nature of reality and who Jesus is. So God willing, we'll be able to put that together over the course of a number of lessons. Now, ultimately, as with all of my videos and everything that Fig Tree Ministries does, is we're really hoping to help you see the depth of Scripture and then to help you along your journey studying the Bible to go deeper into Scripture and have a deeper experience of God with the Scripture. Because the deeper we can see into this, we read it differently. We have a different experience, and there's something about it that, that, hits, um, that hits us as human beings that's more profound the deeper we can go. Now, part of the way we do that is we look at the cultural context of the event. So we don't think about it 2,000 years post-event in our cultural context. We want to go back to first century Jesus, a first century Jewish rabbi, his disciples, Jewish disciples, and 
everything that goes into their worldview and how the cosmos, the, the, the reality of God's creation and how Jesus fits into that as the Messiah. It all comes out of that cultural context so that, again, if we're sitting in the audience of, say, you know, the first house church that received Matthew or Mark's letter, and you're reading this story about the transfiguration, what are all of the aspects that you understand that are informing the meaning of this event? So along that way now, and this is what makes it difficult, is this is, by its very nature, a mystical event. And when we get to the mystical, especially, and I'm talking as a Westerner in Western context, now I personally love the mystical and the mystery of God, and I'm perfectly okay with that. But in, the, in our Western context, we're often not very comfortable with the mystical. We're, we are uh, always trying to solve the equation, so to speak, break out our you know, slide rule and figure everything out in a scientific way. Uh, Eastern Orthodox, by the way, and even in the Coptic Christians in Egypt, much more comfortable with the mystical than uh, Westerners are. So this is a mystical event. It's not something to be solved. And so we're going to have to resist our urge to try to figure it out and come up with a concrete answer as to exactly what everything means. And what you want to do, and I'll help you, I'll give you a technique with this, is you just want the text to help engage you uh, as a spiritual being to form you and have God give you insights. And we really want to resist that urge to solve everything. Um, I happened to be having lunch with one of my donors, and I was telling her one of the things that is going to be coming up next. And I said, well, we're going to do the transfiguration. And I was just expressing to her that, you know, this is not an easy thing to do. Uh, you know, it's like a circular poetry rather than uh, a straightforward math problem. And I said, how do I solve the transfiguration? And she said, very, she just looked at me and said, well, I can give you that answer in two words. You don't. And she gets it. You ponder it. You contemplate it. You recognize the beauty of it. And then you just allow it to work on you as an individual. So in this series, if you hang on through this series, and if we can set aside the agenda to try to solve everything perfectly, um, and just contemplate the, ex the exquisite nature of this event, then I think God will bless you. I think that as God's Spirit begins to work in you through the text, through the story itself, uh, that you will have a deeper understanding of the nature of reality and where Jesus fits in it. All right, so that's basically our goal. All right, so today, what are we going to do tonight? I'll give you a little preview here uh, of what we're going to do. In our, this is our introductory lesson. I probably should have put part one or introduction on here. I'm not, again, I'm not really sure how many parts we're going to go, but just for tonight, we're going to look at, I'm going to cover, I've got 10 of them. Now, there's, there are probably more. I'm just, I had to come up with a number. I had to limit it somewhere. I had to come up with a number. So I've got 10 areas of understanding. And over the course of the next few weeks, these are the 10 areas that I'm going to walk through. 
that will give you then uh, that foundation for understanding what's happening. So I'll introduce all of these uh, very quickly because that's what we'll cover in subsequent lessons. We're going to talk about, I mentioned, one way to engage the text. This is an ancient idea called Lectico Divina. It's a way of, or what means divine reading. And it's a way of engaging the text with your, with your whole being. Now, if, you're, if you've done Lectico Divina before, I'm, this is not a class on it. So if you Google that, you'll find a lot more than I'm going to tell you about. But I just want to introduce, since we're talking about a difficult subject, a technique for reading the Bible that can help you engage the text at a deeper level. And then we'll finish tonight with um, an example. I'll give you an example of one of, the, one of the building blocks to the foundation. And this is probably one of the more obscure building blocks but it's Psalm 42 and 43. And then I'll show you how those Psalm 42, 43, the geographical, um, where those Psalms are located is going to connect to the transfiguration. And then there's, a, there's another place that connects those Psalms to the transfiguration as well. So this is what we're going to do. It, the areas of understanding, we'll look at the Lectico Divina very quickly. And I'll give you an example from Psalm 42 and 43. Okay, so the first thing, let's just start with the transfiguration event itself. We find it in three locations. We find it in Matthew 17, 1 to 13. We find it in Mark 9, 2 to 8. And then we find it in Luke 9, 28 to 36. So this is where you're going to want to go. If you're following along and you're doing these uh, lessons in order, then you're going to want to become familiar with the story, and this is where you're going to find it. The more you learn about it as you go back to these, the more details will jump out at you, and that's obviously the way Scripture works, why we spend our lifetimes learning our Bible. But uh, there are variances in the way that the story's told in each one. I'm not going to get into those and try to decipher those. There are other people who have done that, and you can find those studies. And then John, by the way, even though John was there at the event, John does not tell the story. So uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke is where you're going to find the transfiguration story. And the next thing is, what is transfiguration? Where do we get that, that word, right? What are, so in Greek... The word that is the Greek word that's in our New Testament is metamorpho, and that, of course, comes from metamorphosis. It's a transformation. Something is changing. So the word metamorpho, transfigured, transform, or change. And the New Testament uses metamorpho for both Jesus and the transfiguration and followers of Jesus, Christians, us, those on the journey to follow Jesus. Now, transfiguration or transfigured is the more mm, religious word, right? So when we talk Jesus, it's transfigured, because when you use that word, you tend to think of Jesus. And when it comes to followers, it's transform or change, something changed. So I just want to realize, 
Jesus transfigures, yes, but then also followers do too. And when we talk Jesus, it's always the word transfiguration when we get to follow it. Let me give you an example. Let me show you an example. 2 Corinthians uh, 3.18, one of the great verses, because it talks about our responsibility for transformation. Not to do the work, that's the Spirit, but for us to open ourselves up for the work to be done. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this. This is Paul talking, and Paul is, he says, look, we who with unveiled faces mirror or reflect the Lord's glory. Now, a lot of Bibles put reflect. Uh, The word underneath is to mirror, right? We have an unveiled face, and we're going to mirror or reflect the Lord's glory. And then it says this, we are being transformed, metamorpho. Now, that's what, notice when it's us individuals, it's metamorpho, not transfigured, into his image with ever-increasing glory. Now, whose image? Well, the image of God. That's whose image we're made in. The problem is, we're not reflecting that image, right? So, we have to transform with ever-increasing glory. Notice, ever-increasing uh, implies that there's a process happening over time. You don't, it doesn't happen magically. Day one, you become a Christian. So, we, mad, we uh, slowly, over time, with ever-increasing glory, transform into His image, which comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. So, I just want to give you an example of the use of that word for the followers, that we, do, we talk transformation or change rather than um, transfigure. Okay, but either way, it's, a, it's the transfiguration, a, cha- a, a, a transformation, a change. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see on that mountain is Jesus is going to transform into the, the ultimate reality of who he is. Okay, next on the list is the cultural context. So as I mentioned earlier, Jesus, a first century rabbi, his disciples, first century Jewish disciples, and they have grown up in a culture that has attempted for the, for the previous few hundred years to hang on to their traditions as Jews, to not get sucked into the Hellenistic world that's all around them. And they're going to maintain their traditions. They're going to maintain their uniqueness, uniqueness. And their emphasis, of course, is the Hebrew Bible. So we're going to look where in the, what in the Hebrew Bible, what passages or what stories in the Hebrew Bible are, do they hold out to be these significant stories that are going to inform us about the transfiguration? So step one, Hebrew Bible. It's everything to Jesus and his disciples. Hebrew Bible is what we call the Old Testament. The second thing, though, is we have about a 500-year period between the time when the second temple is being rebuilt, as Nehemiah come back from um, captivity in Babylon, you've got this 500-year period where a lot is changing. The world is changing, and there is a lot going on, and there are a lot of writings. What you see, and this is one of the significant pieces to understanding these Second Temple period writings, 
is you can see the transformation of thought that's taking place over time. Where, you know, in the Old Testament, you don't see the word Sadducee. But suddenly in the New Testament, there's Sadducee or Pharisee. The Old Testament, not a lot on, not a lot of emphasis on resurrection. By the New Testament, there's a whole emphasis of resurrection, as if you all should already understand that. That comes out of that Second Temple period. So we'll look at some of those Second Temple period writings. And then the last thing is, is rabbinic thought. Now, rabbinic thought is a little bit different than the way Westerner, Western Christians think about the text. And so we're going to look at some rabbinic thought, and that comes out of the rabbinic writings, um, the Mishnah and the, and the Talmud, and I'll show you one interpretation of Psalm 42-43 that fit this. So that's the cultural context that we're looking at. We're not going to worry about how people interpret it a thousand years later. We want to know what would they be thinking in that first century. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. Uh, a mind map, if you haven't dealt with a mind map, um, you know, is not a straight line. You're, you're going to do an artistic representation of everything that's flowing in to affect something. And I was telling my wife, I said, look, it's, you know, you, you can't just, it's not linear. You can't just draw a straight line as if one thing leads to the next. And she said, well, what about the, uh, what about the, the chambered nautilus? You've used that example before as the spiritual journey, a chambered nautilus. And if you Google chambered nautilus, you come up with a little sea creature that has a spiraling shell who we learned a few weeks ago is mathematically perfect. Each chamber is mathematically perfect. So as it grows, the chambers expand. And we use this, the chambered nautilus, to talk about our spiritual growth. One, your spiritual growth is not in a straight line, and it grows, but it's in spirals outward. So we're going to use the idea of a chambered nautilus to kind of bring together all of these areas that we're going to look at that help us understand what's going on again during that transfiguration. So we'll place Jesus here at the center of the pinnacle of, of, of the spiral. Okay, so just to go through, and these are all on your sheet, and I didn't put them pictorially. We are working on getting a document together that would show you a more artistic um, representation of these. And then on the handout for this class, I basically gave you the list. So what's the first one? Well, I'm going to start. This is probably going to be, this is going to be the one that is the most, um, mm, it's the least known, and it's going to be the one that might hold the most importance, is Psalm 42 and 43. And I stick those together. I'll talk about that in a minute. But Psalm 42 and 43. And once we understand it, I think you'll, God willing, you'll understand why those are so important to this, to this story. Psalm 42 and 43, the rabbis use a technique called midrash. To drash, drash means to search, to seek, to inquire. And what the rabbis would do is they would inquire of a text. And then they would weave, it's theologically accurate, but they would weave a, a little bit of a story around a text 
that would help then lead you to an understanding. And so there's a rabbinic midrash on Psalm 43, and it happens to fit. Now, for instance, a type of midrash is a parable. So Jesus has something in mind, uh, usually a text of Scripture. Let's say the parable of the Good Samaritan, as most people know that one. It's a midrash on Leviticus 19.18. Who's your neighbor? God says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then the man asks Jesus, well, okay, if I have to love my neighbor as myself, then who's my neighbor? Define neighbor. Because in the first century, that was a big deal. Who do you have to love? A Roman? A Samaritan? Right? Who's, who's your neighbor that you have to love? Define that for me. And that's what Jesus does. He steps in. His answer is in parable. And the parable, the midrash, then drives you to an understanding. And you could see, if you, if you know what Jesus is up to, you'll see at the very end, the guy does too. The guy who's, I don't know, challenging Jesus or asking him questions, he gets it because he won't even say the word Samaritan. So Jesus kind of forces him into that. Anyways, we'll look at a, we'll look at a midrash on Psalm 43. Um, the next one, we, we talked Old Testament, right? So Exodus 24, this is where Moses is going to lead three named disciples up a mountain. Jesus leads three named disciples up a mountain, and they see God. And that's a very interesting passage from Exodus. So we'll talk that one. Then another one from Exodus, which, which everybody seems to uh, recognize, Exodus 34, 29 to 35. And Exodus 34, 29 to 35 is where Moses is now spending time in a on top of the mountain with God, and when he comes down off the mountain, he is transfigured in a way where his face is glowing. So he's, uh, the glory of God is being reflected in Moses. So that's uh, Exodus 34. Another one we're going to weave into this is going to be Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is a messianic text pointing out the servant of Israel, and this is going to fully connect. In fact, when God speaks during the transfiguration story, God speaks, he uses the words of Isaiah 42. Okay? Uh, now, what we'll do today, a little, in, a, in a few minutes, is Mount Hermon. This is the mountain that scholars believe now. Uh, I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. Scholars believe Mount Hermon is where the transformation, uh, where the transfiguration took place. Hermon is derived from a word that means sacred. Talk a little bit more about that, and I'll show you a picture of Mount Hermon. You have Second Temple writings. They help us understand the mindset, the thinking that was going on for those people in the first century. And if, if we don't understand that there is a development of thought that leads up to the point that when Jesus says one thing or does one thing, everybody already has a context for it, and we often don't have that context. So this Second Temple writings will help us, and I want to show you one, just one, to help you understand what I mean by it, because this would have been a common, it's very common in the Second Temple writings, but this would be a common way of thinking for people. So this one comes from, and it's on your sheet. 
It's called the Apocalypse of Baruch. Now, that's clearly, uh, it's, it's in the category of writings that's called the Pseudepigrapha. And so they're using the pseudonym of Baruch as, well, to try to gain some notoriety for this writing. This writing is dated to somewhere around the first century. I'm sorry. It's dated to somewhere in the latter half of the first century. But let me show you the, the, the relevant text here. Apocalypse of Baruch, chapter 51, and it's verse 3. And you'll see what I mean. They're talking about the glory of the righteous, right? So as for the glory of those who prove to be righteous, sinless, perhaps, righteous on account of my law, that's the, that's the, the text of the Bible, those who possessed intelligence in their life, and those who planted the root of wisdom in their heart, all right, what's going to happen to them? Their splendor will be glorified by transformations, right? Transformations. Their splendor is going to be glorified. And look at the next one. And the shape of their face will be changed into the light of their beauty. Now, what happens with Jesus? His face? Yes? is changed into the light of their beauty. And then it says, so that they may acquire and receive the undying world which is promised to them. That's, uh, I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, when, when Jesus says, you will rule over the nations. Or even Paul says, don't you know we rule over uh, angels? To which we say, no, Paul, we actually did not know that. But okay. So there's something that's going to transform after, right, starts today in, in our body, finishes up, culminates ultimately in heaven, and they recognize very common thinking about the light and beauty that will emanate out of those uh, who are righteous. So this is just one example of uh, common thinking about the righteous being glorified and light, emanating light. So that's Apocalypse of Baruch. Hopefully that helps. You can look that up. Um, I'll provide, again, a link or, or a footnote on your handout to where you can find that. Okay, so we have all of those right there thus far. Let me talk about next one. This one's going to be a mystical one. Also in the first century, there's a Jewish, uh, Jewish philosopher from Alexandria, Egypt. His name is Philo, and we'll talk about his use of the heavenly man, and Paul uses the term the heavenly man, and that's who we're being transformed into the image of the heavenly man. That gets a little bit into Jewish mysticism, but that helps us again understand. Uh, rabbinic thought. I mentioned this one. So the rabbis, the, the rabbinical writings about Moses and uh, the light that emanates from his face, and then about the, we'll talk about Adam and Eve, and their, the I, rabbinic thought about the bodies of Adam and Eve. Before God put skin over them, they were considered to be beings of light. Okay, now, our last one, and this one is pretty cool. Uh, if you pay attention in the book of Mark, uh, and I'm, I'm pulling from the, I've done this study in the book of Mark before this progression of the book of Mark, so I'm just going to show you in the book of Mark. But there is definitely a progression in the book of Mark that leads to, it's almost like 
Mark is on, taking us on a journey to see, and when I mean see, it's not just see physical eyes, it's see with your spiritual eyes, to see deeper into the reality of God's creation and recognize who Jesus is. So you get a lot in the Bible of, or those who have eyes but can't see, those who have ears but can't hear. And Jesus is going to repeat this in Mark, and he's going to say, do you have eyes that, that can't see? Do you have ears that can't hear? Come on, people, wake up. Wake up to who I am. Now, what's cool is in this progression of Mark is right here in Isaiah 42, there's a whole section on seeing and hearing. And it fits this waking. To become awake is to see the, the spiritual reality around you for what it is. To not be asleep any longer. To not have our vision clouded. And so, uh, as Jesus is doing miracles in Mark, he's, he's pulling out uh, the, the seeing and hearing, and that leads right up to the transfiguration where the disciples see and hear. So there's a progression happening, and we should, it helps us to understand how that flow goes, that it's like an like unveiling of the reality of who Jesus is. Their disciples are finally seeing it. Uh, you know, many of us have had those moments in our life, too, where something just finally clicks, and we go, aha, that insight from God that says, I get it, I, I know what's going on. So, okay. This is going to be our little map. Now, I know it's not a linear map, right? All of those are going to connect in very strange ways. And they're all going to be kind of circling around the story of the transfiguration. And they feed into it to inform us about what's going on. And then, God willing, to provide some principles of understanding above that as they emerge from uh, all this, this data. So that's your spiritual mind map. We'll be working off of that for the next few weeks as we unpack those uh, areas. Okay, so those are the 10, by the way, those are the 10 areas of understanding. And God willing, you walk through this series of videos, you will come away with a new appreciation of the transfiguration story. Because as you look deeper and deeper and deeper, it will emerge or God will give you insights as to uh, the power of that story. Let me go. I'm going to totally switch gears now because I, what I want to provide you with is just an idea of we're reading a very difficult text. It's a, it's a mystical text. And what we want the, the text to do is to integrate and work on us. And so this is a, it's an ancient technique that I'm just going to very briefly introduce you to. If you go on to uh, Google and you Google Lectico Divina, you will find plenty of sites explaining it and this, their step-by-step -step process. This is not a class on Lectigo Divina, so if you've done it, please forgive me. I'm not trying to... Um, I, I'm just trying to give people a tool to use during this uh, transfiguration study to help them go a little bit deeper in the text. So, Lectigo Divina... Um, well, let me just tell you how to... This is what I would say to do. And again, you'll, you'll find things on Google that'll be a little bit different. It's, it's allowing the text, you're going to read the text aloud. And, and it's important, I, I put here, to not have an agenda. 
You're not trying to read the text to figure everything out. You're just going to read the text to let the text be the, be the Bible. So you read it aloud. You then meditate or contemplate the text. You just, all right, and now you're going to let God and God's Holy Spirit to do the work inside of you. I put the text inside of me, and now I'm going to contemplate, God, what is happening? And one of the steps in Lectico Divina might be to say a prayer. Okay, God, help me understand. Help me go deeper. Open a window or a door that I can see through that I didn't know was there before. So you're going to meditate. You're going to contemplate on it for a while. Do this in, with, uh, in silence. Then, after you've done that, go back and read the text aloud again. Reread it. And so you would just take 20 minutes or so, read uh, either the transfiguration story in the New Testament or read Psalm 42 and 43. Read it aloud so that you're both hearing and you're doing and you're seeing the text and it's all happening at once. Then meditate and do it again. Now, if you did this, if you followed all five or six of these videos and you did this along the way, I can tell you that God will bless you through your, these steps because you will have insights that you didn't have before. And they come through allowing, instead of the agenda of, I'm going to figure out the text, what you do is you, you, you let go of the agenda. You allow the text to work on you. And that, if you've never done this before, can be difficult the first time because you're not used to just letting go and allowing the text to work on you. So it may take three, four, or five times of practicing this to allow yourself to kind of let go and let God do the work. So anyways, just something that can help you contemplate the text and allow God to do the work to help you see deeper into the transfiguration. Okay, so that's Lectico Divina. Now let's finish. So the third thing I was going to do for the agenda tonight is to give you an example. I want to give you an example of how we can connect the transfiguration story to Psalm 42 and 43. Now the rabbis did it, and I'll, we'll, we'll, that'll probably be one of the last ones we do, is the Midrash on Psalm 43. But uh, I want to show you at least right on the surface how we can connect these. And I believe that they are connected. Um, the first thing you'll notice, I'm putting up there two Psalms, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. And there's a reason behind that. They appear to be connected, and at some point in time, they were divided. And we're not really sure when, but my reference on that, well, first of all, if you just read it, there's, there's, a, there's a refrain that's repeated through both Psalm 42 and 43. And so you, they share the same refrain. They share the same common theme. So this, there's a common theme amongst them and a refrain that repeats. So you say, yeah, they're probably connected. A reference for that is a great, this is a great reference if, you, if you're looking for one for your Old Testament. The Jewish Study Bible, and I would get the second edition, make sure, because they put essays in there and they update them, so you want to get the one with, the more, with more essays. But the Jewish Study Bible, uh, if you read on Psalm 42, first thing they say, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are probably connected and separated at some point in time. What I want to look at is the geographical location for these psalms, right? They're, they're naming a specific location. Here, this is a picture in uh, northern Israel, the very northern part of Israel, 
and this picture was in January, so there was snow, but that mountain right there is called Mount Hermon, and it does have snow the majority of the year. It'll melt in the summer, kind of like the Sierra Nevadas have snow only in the summer months does it finally melt off. So it's a 9,000-foot mountain, and um, this is the mountain that scholars believe today that the transfiguration happened on. Not, it hasn't always, church has a different mountain. I'll show you that one in a minute. Um, church tradition has a different mountain. The name Hermon comes from sac- the word for sacred. And what's interesting is when Peter, in his writing, is recounting the, the transfiguration story, Peter says, we went up on a sacred mountain. So there might be an, uh, the connection here between Hermon and what Peter is saying about the sacred mountain. So let me at least show you some things about Mount Hermon uh, that will help you then connect it to Psalm 42. So if we go to a map, this is a map of Israel, and Israel sits on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. So that, that large blue area there on the left side of your screen, that's the Mediterranean Sea. Southeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea, right above Egypt, is Israel. You have, uh, let me put Jerusalem. Jerusalem, there's the red star where Jerusalem is, up in the mountains, just about the northern end of uh, the Dead Sea. Here's the Sea of Galilee, where the majority of Jesus' ministry took place. And this is the Dead Sea in that rift valley uh, down to the south next to Jerusalem. And then Mount Hermon is way up here in the northern part of Israel. And of course, you can see even on this uh, relief map, they show they show it as a um, snow-covered mountain. And then what happens is the Jordan River begins all from Mount Hermon, and the Jordan River then flows from Mount Hermon down that rift valley. It creates the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is just a stopping-off point for the Jordan River, and then the Jordan River terminates in the Dead Sea. Nothing flows out of the Dead Sea. Great teaching on that at some point. We've got a video on the Jordan River. You can check that out. Okay, that's Mount Hermon. Let me go a little bit closer because I want to show you the Jordan River. Here's Mount Hermon right there, and then uh, the Sea of Galilee right here. Now, not all of the um, rivers that eventually make the Jordan are shown, but there is one coming out of the north side. So right here, I put a red line on it. That flows uh, through the Hula Valley and into the Sea of Galilee. There are others, though, from the city called Dan. There's a spring that comes, Ein Dan, comes out of the ground. And I'll show you one in a minute here at Caesarea Philippi. So there's four actually actual main streams that flow into the, to create the Jordan River. So Mount Hermon is in the land of the Jordan. Now let me show you one of them. So at one point here, uh, you saw the snow-capped mountain. All of that snow melts. It goes through the limestone. It seeps down and then just comes gushing out out of the, the rock at a point of a spring. and used to come right out of that cave there. So the cave 
was where the water came out and started flowing downstream. And of course, in the ancient world, wherever you get water coming out of the ground is the entrance to the underworld. And this is, uh, you build your shrines to all your gods that live in the underworld. There was a geological shift because of an earthquake. And today the water comes out right about where those people are standing underneath. It's just literally like a crack in the rock and the water just starts flowing right out from the rock. And this area, many of you have been to, is called Caesarea Philippi. Of course, Jesus took, takes his disciples up there. And very next thing, transfiguration. So this is Caesarea Philippi. Just a little further downstream of Caesarea Philippi, you get this amazing picture, right? You think of Israel as being a desert, not up north. This is uh, Banias Falls, and that's a little bit downstream of, uh, of where Caesarea Philippi is and Tel Dan. And Banias, by the way, just so you know, okay, uh, the original name of the city this city right here that sat right next to this spring, the original name of that city was Panius, with a P. Panius, named for the god Pan. In Arabic, you don't have a P, you have Bs. So today, Banius, still named after that god Pan. In Jesus' day, when Herod the Great died, he divided up his kingdom, and his son Philip got a part of the, the kingdom. He sets up his headquarters right here at Panius, but he names it Philip's Caesarea, after the Caesar that gave him power, Caesarea Philippi. So, Banius becomes Caesarea Philippi. Anyways, today, called Banius. All right, so, one more thing. Here's Mount Hermon up to the north, and I want to show you on this map here. There's a traditional site of the Transfiguration. What I mean by traditional is, it's the site that the church tradition has named the Transfiguration Site. It's called Mount Tabor. And Mount Tabor is just to the southwest of the Sea of Galilee. So on this map, you can see it just to the southwest of that circle. Now, why did they think Mount Tabor? Well, Jesus and his disciples were at Caesarea Philippi. And the text says, after six days... They went up on a mountain, and the disciples were by themselves. And so they said, well, what's, what's a mountain that is six days away that's a prominent peak? And what they come up with is Mount Tabor, and here's a picture of it. So it literally juts out of the valley floor and kind of stands alone. And so many of you have been up there. You've gone up there. There's a church of the Transfiguration up there. Um, and this became the traditional site of this. Now, there's a problem with it. Oh, one of the reasons, too. The Greek is a little bit confusing because we, we translate it as they, the disciples went up on a high mountain by themselves, or they were apart themselves, meaning compared to the other disciples, three of them went apart. But you could also read it, the mountain is apart, it's by itself. And so Mount Tabor looks like it's kind of a standalone mountain. That's another reason that we may have come up with uh, Mount Tabor. Um, now, there's a problem with it. In the first century, there was a Roman fort or a Roman outpost on top of that. I mean, you can imagine, if you've been in the military, you understand you need the high ground. 
so that you can see all the avenues of approach that are that are coming. So this was a fabulous place to put a, uh, a Roman camp. So scholars think, well, that's probably a little bit odd that Jesus would go to a site where the, the Roman army is to transfigure. So it's not likely, sorry for those who have been to Mount Tabor, it's not likely that Mount Tabor was the site of it. Rather, it would be this mountain right here, Mount Hermon, because that's the one that it fits better. It's the sacred mountain to the north. Now let me show you. So we're still talking Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. They're going to fit the transfiguration story, but they also fit Mount Hermon. So if you have your Bible, open up to Psalm 42, and we're going to look at verses 6 and 7. All right, so what I want to do is I want to read a couple verses that are going to connect these psalms to Mount Hermon. But I want to tell you just a little bit about the psalm. Um, both 42 and then leading into 43, the psalmist is uh, distressed. He, he feels as if God is not, has abandoned him, right? Uh, and and the, the cry is, my soul is distressed, God. Um, when am I going to be able to ascend your mountain to, to worship at your house? Oh, the days, I remember the joy of, of going up to your house and the procession and, and being part of that. And my enemies are mocking me because they're saying, where's your God? And so the psalmist is, is distressed. And now eventually he's going to say, send me a deliverer is what happens in, in uh, Psalm 43. But so in Psalm 42, verse 6, you'll see he starts out, he says, my soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you, right? When, you, when your soul gets stressed out, when you're stressed out internally because you feel God isn't there, what you have to do is remember the times when God was there. Don't you remember when God did this and did this and did this and was close to you? So just because you can't feel God right now doesn't mean he's not there and doesn't mean he's not working on your behalf. So my soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you. Now look, from the land of the Jordan, ah, the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Now Hermon and Mizar, there's actually three different peaks up there. So they could be, they could be naming the different peaks, but from the heights of Hermon. And so this the psalm now connects to Mount Hermon, the land of the Jordan, where the Jordan begins. Now look at the next verse. Look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. Look like Banias Falls, right? Waterfalls. And that deep calls to deep. The word there for deep is to home. That might not mean anything to you, but it's in verse 3 of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven, the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and the Spirit of God hovered over the deep, the tahom. It's the deep, chaotic waters. His soul feels unsteady, because where is God? It's like I'm in churning waters. Your waves and breakers have swept over me. I feel destabilized, God, because I can't find out where you're at. And I want to one day get back to the point. We'll see how this plays out uh, throughout the Psalms. But I just want you to notice these Psalms then connect to this mountain right here, Mount Hermon. And of course, the story that leads up to 
the Transfiguration, the story right before it, Caesarea Philippi, where Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, and then Jesus says, okay, let's go up the mountain, and now I'm going to be transfigured, and you see and hear that I'm the Messiah. So um, these two are clearly connected. Okay, I, hopefully it wasn't too disjointed tonight. Um, I know I went very, had to go very quickly over, the, um, over these areas of understanding, uh, this 10 areas. It's just an introduction uh, over the course of the next few weeks. We'll unpack all of these, and God willing, I'll be able to show you how they fit together. Remember, mind maps are not linear. You just put all the ideas on there, and then you allow God and His Holy Spirit to help you have insights to how these connect. So introduce the areas of understanding. We talked about that idea of lectico divina. Just read the text and allow the text to uh, work through you, through the divine reading. Just allow God to work. Don't try to solve the, the equation. And then finally, how do we connect Psalm 42 and 43 to the transfiguration? Well, scholars today believe Mount Hermon to be the mountain not Mount Tabor. So if that's the mountain of the transfiguration, Psalm 42 and 43 are set in that. And oh, by the way, there's more connections to come that I'll show you in later weeks. So that Psalm 42 and 43 connect to this area where that happened. All right, so over the course of the next few weeks, I believe that this will come clear. This is really part one to understand this just amazing thing that happens, but tells us about the reality of who Jesus is. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear, can we also see in just glimpses, really, the reality of who Jesus is and the reality of God's creation that then allows us to, as Paul said, transform into his likeness that we one day would be reflecting the glory of God in our being, how wonderful and glorious that would be. So please let me know if you have questions. You can put them down in the uh, comment section below. I read all the comments. If not, uh, you can also email me with questions at info at bigtreeteaching.com, and I'll be sure to answer any questions or help direct you in any way I can. <music>